When you've been a pastor for three decades, you see some stuff. Uh, you see everything. And when you think you've seen everything, there's even more to see. And so today, I'm going to share with you 30 years of church stories. Now we're going to scratch the surface. We're going to go through some of the craziest ones. Not the craziest ones, because I don't think I could do those on these podcasts. But listen, a couple of things real quick. Even though this podcast is rated clean, in this episode, you might hear some words or phrases that you might have to explain to your kids if they happen to be listening. Kind of like the parents did who heard them in church the first time they ever happened. So just consider yourselves warned. Welcome to the Reckless Grace Podcast. My name is Bill. What is the answer to much of the turmoil our nation is facing today? Have you found that the issues that 2020 brought to the surface have challenged your relationships? Perhaps it even destroyed some of your relationships. Join with Bill Vanderbush and co-writer Britt Eaton as they unfold the answer to these questions and more in their book, Reckless Grace. What is this grace that Jesus put on display and why is it even referred to as reckless? Many readers have found healing on a deep, deep level as they've applied this message of grace to their families, businesses, and marriages. Doors have opened for them in areas they never would have dreamed possible. It's time for the world to heal. It's time for reckless grace, the reckless grace of God to invade and come on in full force and be evident in his people. Reckless Grace is available on Amazon.com or Bill's website, BillVanderbush.com. Well, after just doing two of these podcasts, I received an incredible amount of feedback. Even the angry people are happy, which is kind of a weird thing. In other words, people who don't agree with much of anything I say at all seem to actually be enjoying the podcast. And, and maybe in the midst of enjoyment, makes you think a little bit. I'm always trying to think of some, some new perspectives just to increase my clarity on the goodness of of God, the grace of God. And and honestly, I haven't seen the end of it yet. I haven't seen the full extent of how amazing his grace actually is. And I got news for you. Neither have you. And as I go along in this incredible Christian life with three decades of pastoring under my belt, I've found myself collecting stories. I mean, weird stories. When you think you've seen it all, and then you just see something that makes you go, wow. And so I had somebody ask this past week, would it be possible if you just share some stories? And story's a big deal to me. As a matter of fact, I think think the future belongs to the storyteller. Dear friend of mine, Ted Decker says that the shortest distance between the head and the heart is a really good story. The Bible says Jesus actually used stories whenever he taught. He taught in parables. One of the Gospels literally says, without a parable, he didn't teach. And so, you know, we could actually look at the entire life that we're living right now as just one gigantic, amazing story. And my wife likes to say this, every person's life is a book. And don't judge the book by the chapter you walked in on, but recognize that maybe your involvement in somebody else's life is to help them to write a glorious conclusion. Help them bring them out of a dark chapter that they've been in. Maybe you can see other people as helping you write your story. So I'm going to share some stories with you today. You know, as a pastor, a young pastor in a small church, uh, many, many years ago, I did a ton of odd jobs. People say, you know, well, I'm a bivocational pastor. Listen, I was a tri-vocational 
quad vocational pastor. I did a ton of jobs. I, I was a, a limo driver once. I was a pizza delivery guy. Matter of fact, I, I worked in a in a pizza restaurant in Austin, Texas, and, and I was flipping pizzas behind the counter because at the time, being a pastor just didn't pay a whole lot. And one of my deacons of the church that I was pastoring came in, and I must have been so covered in flour that he literally ordered a pizza from me and never even recognized that it was me. Kind of an interesting thing. I actually never even said anything. I just let him order and walk out. And uh, I was just sort of standing there bewildered by the entire process. Uh, Maybe my pastor costume being off was kind of like Clark Kent in the Superman costume. You know, I never understood why nobody could recognize that Clark Kent was Superman until a deacon of mine didn't recognize me in a pizza shirt. I worked one time for uh, the actress Sandra Bullock. I was an accidental housekeeper for Sandra, which is humorous in itself because I don't really, I don't really keep house. It's not that I'm dirty. I'm just not really great at cleaning. Uh, that's my wife. She's amazing. She keeps the house looking like a model home all the time, which was always sort of a point of pleasure and stress for me, you know, at the same time. But nonetheless, I had a friend who had a commercial cleaning business and he got the bid to clean Sandra Bullock's new house when she was building this massive monstrosity in Austin, Texas. And he decided to take me on a tour of it, but he really wasn't supposed to do that. It's when I got out there on the tour, I suddenly realized I was in way over my head because now I had to pose as one of the foremen for his company. Over the course of that day, somehow in some strange way, I ended up with a job that I didn't want and I really didn't need. And the job was that I was supposed to be the supervisor for cleaning Sandra's house. And my cleaning crew spoke Spanish and I did not. And that made me a pretty lousy foreman. Now, fortunately for me, the cleaning crew knew exactly what they were doing. And so they would go around and they would continue to clean. Um, I I would try to do certain odd jobs. And one of the days uh, we unloaded a a truck load, a a load of linens. And I thought, well, let's put these linens on the bed. So I found something uh, that was called a duvet cover, D-U-V-E-T. Now, look, when I called my wife and told her about this, she about fell on the floor laughing because now I understand it's called a duvet cover. But look, I don't speak French, right? So uh, if you don't know what a duvet cover is either, you're my people. So I I took these duvet covers and looked at them. They look like gigantic pillowcases with buttons on the end. And I proceeded to assume uh, that these things went over the mattress, like, like as if it was a rich person's fitted sheet, and proceeded to put eight duvet covers over eight mattresses, including Sandra Bullock's California King. And yes, I got it buttoned too. And let me tell you, putting a duvet cover over a mattress and getting it buttoned, not an easy task. But hey, this is what I had to do. Called my wife, said, hey, what's a duvet cover? And she says, it's called a duvet cover, Bill, in between laughter. And and I said, what do you do with it? And she says, "You, you put a comforter inside of it. And there was like a long pause of silence. And I just simply said, I got to go. And, uh, and then I went and tried to correct the, uh, the stupidity of, of my assumption. 
It's not the only assumption I've been wrong about in my life, by the way. That was that was one of many more that I'm just not going to tell you about. Uh, I, I also figured out that I just had to pass the time out at Ms. Bullock's house uh, while the cleaning crew did their job and did it incredibly well. So I found a watering pot and I would go around and water plants. And uh, on one particular day, Sandra Bullock, matter of fact, the first time I ever met her, she was walking down the center hall of her house and walking straight toward me. And the rule was you don't talk to Sandra unless she talks to you first. And so I turned to the first plant that I saw and I began to water this plant. And Sandra stopped and looked straight at me and said, you do realize that's a fake plant, right? The next thing out of her mouth in my stunned silence standing there, uh, feeling more embarrassed than perhaps I'd ever felt in my life. Uh, she said, you don't do this for a living, do you? And that's when I told her, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm, uh, wow. And this is how I got this job. And yeah, you're right. I really don't belong here, but she was very kind. And we struck up a, a, just a small friendship. It was around Christmas time. And I gave her a CD of because this is before, by by the way, this is before like iTunes and iPods and all that stuff. And so I gave her a CD of Rich Mullins, actually, Liturgy, Legacy, and a Ragamuffin Band, which if you've ever heard that CD, it's timeless, it's beautiful. And she just had a massive sound system installed throughout the entire house, and that was the only CD she had to test it on. And so for two days, Rich Mullins played all over Sandra Bullock's house while construction workers... And, uh, and other people just wandered around listening to songs about Jesus. I always thought that was kind of an interesting part of the story. I've seen, done some crazy things in churches and certainly heard some crazy stories. Like the dear friend of mine who is a young evangelist literally punched a pastor on a Sunday morning, hitting him so hard he knocked him out because he perceived that he was lukewarm to the things of God and walking in compromise. Like I heard the story of a young uh, uh, man who drove uh, a couple hundred miles in the middle of the night, feeling a leading from the Lord to take a can of spray paint and write the word Ichabod across the side of a mega church because it felt like the church was in compromise to the things of God. Now that actually happened. And hopefully the statute of limitations on prosecuting that has run out. No, that wasn't me. Speaking of of Ichabod, I heard the story of a woman in Minnesota who stood up in the middle of a church service calling the entire church to prayer and repentance and wanting to say Ichabod, she got her words mixed up and, and actually said, if we don't pray more and come to a place of repentance, God is going to come in here and write Michelob all over this church. Michelob, which got me thinking, is he going to write it in you know, blue neon lettering that blinks and, and who knows, maybe the church will grow. Maybe that'll help something. I also remember we used to do a ton of uh, dramatic things on Sunday mornings. Uh, we did human videos. We were always having the youth group getting up and doing something. And, and for whatever reason, our human videos most of the time were to songs by Audio Adrenaline, Jeff Moore in the Distance, Ray Bolts, or Carmen. Most of them, admittedly, were Carmen. And 
one of the songs that Carmen had was a song that sort of finished with this massive dramatic ultimate end on Jesus being the champion. And, and we had also just seen uh, John Jacobs and the power team. I don't know if anybody remembers the power team, but these guys would preach the gospel in between doing really what everybody wanted to see done, which is bend steel bars in their teeth, run through gigantic blocks of ice with their shoulders, blow up hot water bottles until they burst and tear telephone books in half. Uh, these guys were just massive. And watching them was was always just a lot of fun. And, and they would get the entire crowd hyped up. And at the end of the evening, in an emotional frenzy, John Jacob, John Jacobs would preach a message and share the gospel. And, you know, young people would come running to the front to give their lives to Jesus. It was really a relatively effective tool to actually getting people to come to Christ, or at least to make a decision for Christ, or at least to be so terrified these guys were going to come down there and rip you in half if you didn't say yes to Jesus that you just said yes anyway. So so uh, we went to the power team and we got inspired by the power team and a combination of inspiration by the power team and a song by Carmen turned into a bit of a disaster on a Sunday morning. One of our youth group was a a, a large uh, young man. He, he was a football player. He was a basketball player. He was an athlete. And we had decided we were going to figure out a way that our youth group could break big pieces of concrete with their forearms on a Sunday morning as a big giant display of power and force and might. And, uh, and so we took these concrete strips that you would use to put around like a garden and uh, scored them a little bit. That made them really, really easy to break. As a matter of fact, all you had to do was lean on it and it would just pop. And we found out that if you put these in a stack and you put a gap between the bricks, that you could you could break a stack of three to five bricks relatively easy. All you had to do is pop that top one and the force would just carry it all the way through the stack. And it was really, really impressive. Except for this one young man could not figure out why people smaller than him were breaking the same amount of bricks. And he decided right before the human video started that he was going to add about three or four bricks to his stack. And he picked a couple that were not scored, so they weren't prepared to break. And uh, nobody really seemed to notice this fact until it came time to bust the stack. And I thought to myself, why is his stack so much taller than everybody else's stack? And when he came around with his forearm, his technique was a little off. And right in front of the congregation on a Sunday morning, he broke his arm. And it was dramatic. I mean, his arm went into the shape of an L right in the middle of a church service and, you know, to his everlasting credit, I guess it was just sheer adrenaline. Instead of falling on the ground in pain, he took that broken arm and swung it around again and came down on that stack and broke that thing, broke that stack of bricks with a broken arm. And, you know, by that point, everybody's out of their seats. People are terrified. It, it was, it was, uh, well, I don't know. I don't know what it was, but it, it, it wasn't the desired effect that we were really going for. I, nobody remembers what I preached that morning. I don't think anybody remembered the point of the message. Everybody just remembered the young man that broke his arm and had to go straight to the ER on a Sunday morning. The crazy, crazy things we did for the gospel.
One time I, I had a sermon illustration I wanted to make a point with, and the point had to do with something about rain. And, and so I wanted to make it rain in the sanctuary of the church. We were in a strip center in Austin, Texas at the time, and I had been to the Rainforest Cafe, and I decided I, I wanted to see water come falling you know, out of the ceiling all over the stage as part of this, this dramatic effect. And, and so we did, we actually created a system of pipes up over the the stage, uh, and drilled holes through them and ran water and had somebody standing in the alley of the back of the church. And at a, on cue, they'd kick the water on and the rain would start falling. And there were gutters down along the edge of the stage, uh, and, and the water would fall into the gutter and would go out the side of the church. But the crazy part about it is during that section of the service, the lighting uh, was so low that people only heard the water and never actually saw it fall. We spent the whole week creating an effect that nobody even saw and nobody even knew was happening. We might as well have just played a rain sound effect over the sound system. Remember, we also had a guy in the church who was a... uh, uh, Navy demolitions expert. And this guy uh, was a pyrotechnics genius. Uh, he loved making mushroom clouds and making things explode. And so whenever we did a church play, it always had something to do with war or combat. Not exactly sure why. I remember the, the movie Black Hawk Down had just come out. And there was a scene in that film where a guy holds a rocket-propelled uh, grenade launcher and the angle of it just made it look so cool as it whizzed right over the heads of everybody in the street in the, in the, in the film and hits a wall and the wall blows up. I thought this would be a great effect to simulate on a Sunday uh, to make a point in a scene, especially when we were talking about things like like uh, the military and America and all those things. And so we concocted this system where a model rocket on a wire would be just over the heads of the congregation and it would go from the back of the auditorium all the way to the front of the auditorium and, and would hit the wall and there was a hole in the wall and and there was a, a coffee can filled with explosives spackled over on the wall and as that rocket hit that wall it would detonate and and that detonation would blow plaster out all over the place actually blew it out all over the first three rows of the sanctuary, um, which ended up not being the best idea we ever had. But for everybody who wasn't in the first three rows, it was absolutely spectacular. It was spectacular the first couple of times we tried it. And then we had a rocket with a faulty engine and that faulty engine just dropped sparks all over the place and moved the rocket very, very slowly over the heads of the congregation, which was a bad idea in Texas because it seemed like at the time every woman had really high hair and a ton of hairspray. And so I suddenly came to the horrifying realization that there's a lot of flammable heads that sparks are falling all over. Fortunately, Nobody uh, blew up in the congregation, but we did blow some people up on stage. Uh, My friend really enjoyed making mushroom clouds of fire, 
And so we set up some flash pots on the stage with with a pretty good charge. And we had a relatively high ceiling at the time. And we had a couple of deacons that were stumbling around on the stage in uniform as if they were uh, wounded soldiers trying to get off a battlefield with bombs going off around them. You've seen these scenes over and over again, if you've seen Saving Private Ryan or whatnot. This is what we were trying to replicate. And these two guys stumbled, and one guy put his face right over top of a flash pot when the thing went off. And when he kind of jumped back, I suddenly realized he was missing an eyebrow, and that happened. That was kind of a fascinating time of creativity, and not necessarily anointing, just creativity. We were just people that were just coming up with cool ideas to somehow, in some sort of creative way, try to communicate something that would perhaps, you know, shake people uh, awake enough to know, hey, we got a message we want to share. Behind all this nonsense and behind all this goofiness, there is something that we want to tell you, and it's about Jesus. Over the years, all that stuff has been stripped away, it seems, but that really wasn't the end of our shenanigans Uh, some of the craziest things happened when I was a youth minister. As a youth pastor, uh, we we never really had uh, much in the way of restraint. As a matter of fact, pushing the limits and the boundaries of of what we had done previously was always something that we were were doing. We were trying to one-up ourselves all the time on the crazy wow factors in our youth group. Probably, most dramatically, And this is before the Columbine shooting. We decided to stage a shooting in our youth service. And we used real guns and blanks. And and we actually had some kids set up as part of the the whole process. And the, the deal was in the middle of the youth service, a couple of gunmen would come in, hold the youth pastor hostage, challenge him to re, renounce his faith. And then when a young person stood up to defend their youth pastor, well, they'd start taking out young people. Now, if you're horrified by what you're hearing, please understand, I'm as horrified as you are by the fact that we even did such a stupid thing. Uh, There was no school shootings going on back then, it seemed, and Columbine hadn't happened. And so uh, this was sort of an unheard of concept, except we'd heard about it in foreign countries, places where the gospel was oppressed. And we thought, let's give these spoiled American teenagers a taste of what it's like to be a Christian in a country where this is against the law. I remember in that youth service, we had a lot of fake blood and and there was uh, a lot of blood, fake blood left on the walls when we were done. And a lot of it remained there as sort of a testimony to uh, the lesson that hopefully we had somehow managed to communicate. You would think that'd be the craziest thing that we ever did, but it wasn't. When I took over as senior pastor of a church in Austin, Texas, many, many years ago. I was only 25 years old and senior pastoring and youth pastoring at the same time was something I I didn't feel like was fully sustainable. And we had enough income in the church at the time to support uh, another minister on staff. And so I called a dear friend of mine who was the same age as I am and uh, said, hey, I need a youth pastor slash associate. And so now the church essentially was pastored by two young youth pastors who had gone to college together, which made us even more dangerous. A dear friend, one of my dearest friends in the whole world came to to be on staff 
uh, with me at the church. We'd still remain close friends to this day, um, even after all the stuff we went through. And perhaps the craziest thing these guys ever came up with was this idea of doing a, a bit of a hayride on the church property. Now, the church property that we had purchased actually had a cemetery on it, had an old barn in the back of the property. And and they had the idea to take a, a tractor with a bunch of kids on a hay wagon and take it up by the barn and then to stall the tractor to make the kids walk back through the woods at night toward the cemetery. And the point of all this, by the way, was to get them into the cemetery where they could listen to a message on the old man. You know, the concept of your old man is is dead in Christ and you don't want that old man to come back to life. And so the old man, the dead man versus the new man, the new creation that you are in Christ. It's a common youth message back then. And we thought doing it in a cemetery would just, just drive the point home all the much more. But the idea just kind of went a little bit out of control because one of our youth interns decided he was going to dress up as, as Leatherface and get a, uh, a chainsaw. And as if from the movie The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, he would come out of the barn as the kids were getting off the hay wagon and chase them through the woods because that would certainly help with the message of the gospel. Now, yeah, well, that wasn't the thought. The gospel had been sort of left in the dust at that point, and the idea was now we're just going to freak these kids out. And it worked. Wow, did it work. They go running through the, the, the woods, uh, leather faces chasing them with a chainsaw. This is all happening as part of a youth group outing. They ended up in the cemetery, and, and now came the major moment of truth because We had set up the cemetery in such a way as to actually bury a couple of people in the cemetery. Shallow graves, just with some sod over top of them. And and when the young people sat down on the ground to hear the message, there'd be a point in the message where we'd say something along the lines of, just when you think that old man is gone forever, no, he comes back. And at this point, these guys would get up out of the ground in an old cemetery. And I mean old cemetery, like 1800 cemetery with the tombstones that are sort of deteriorated and, and they're sort of leaning and, and in the moonlight, suddenly imagine if an arm comes sticking up out of the ground, kids screamed, students ran in all directions. It was mayhem. I got calls for two weeks about that from parents who were just furious. But would you know the youth group exploded in growth And as a result, when it was all said and done, a lot of kids came to know Jesus. Youth group activity wasn't just relegated to church. It was in church camp as well. And stories that came out of church camp were just just crazier than crazy. Like the time the youth group took uh, all the clothes away from a young man except uh, for a wash rag while he was in the shower and then wondered what in the world he was going to do. And that young man came out of the shower room, walked across the the campground uh, in full view of everybody of the camp in the camp with the wash rag over his face, yes, over his face. I remember being back at church. You never knew what was going to happen, and 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 also you could really offend people completely by accident. I mean, not just from saying something; just the simplest action could actually send a person into a tailspin. Of, of offense. And uh, 
And this happened one day when, uh, when I found a book in the sanctuary. Uh, it was a book on the Jezebel spirit. And if you've ever heard stories on the Jezebel spirit or read books on the Jezebel spirit, it's, it's a thing. And it's in the Bible. And there was a book that I find on the Jezebel spirit. Now, Jezebel is a, a woman in the Bible. And so for whatever reason, in my mind, I thought perhaps this belonged to a woman in the church. And the person that would know who that woman would be would probably be the director of the women's ministry. So I walked back to the administrative offices and we had a mailbox system and I took that book and just tossed it into the box of the woman who was the head of our women's ministry at the time. A month or so later, she came into my office just upset as can be, telling me that somebody anonymously had sent her a message and she could not figure out who it is or what they were trying to tell her. And the message was anonymously, somebody had put a book on the Jezebel spirit in her box. She felt that communicated to her that somebody in the church thought she had a Jezebel spirit. And she had just been in turmoil over the whole thing. And now I'm sitting there trying to decide if I'm going to admit that I was the one that put it in her box and only because I found it in the sanctuary and I thought she might be able to return it to its rightful owner. Isn't it amazing how a simple misunderstanding can take days, maybe even weeks of of worry and pile them onto your life? I'm going to take a quick break in the middle of this podcast to tell you a little bit about the Quantum Preaching Masterclass. It's a 30-day e-course, an online e-course that will help you to be a better communicator and a better presenter of the gospel. And here to tell you a little bit more about it is my friend Aaron. What is Quantum Preaching? Bill Vanderbush wants to help you discover and develop your voice. Quantum preaching is a supernatural ability to connect with people where the revelation that's making your heart come alive becomes the very revelation that makes the listener's heart come alive. The future belongs to the storyteller and the power of the story is the layers of revelation it contains. In this course, you will learn to become a master storyteller, no matter what age or background of the audience you are speaking to. Quantum Preaching is a 30-day video on-demand course that you can do at your very own pace. Each video contains unique insights that will challenge you to become a better communicator. You'll get access to Bill's Sermon Vault, access to the Quantum Preaching Facebook group, influential interviews, revelation and preaching insights, and more. Go to quantumpreaching.com for more information. Sometimes you slip up when you're trying to preach the gospel and you say something that totally derails the entire message. Like the guest speaker who got up in church one day and was going to say, the church is a living organism. And the word organism isn't the word he used, which prompted, I think, a lot of parents to have conversations with their kids after service that they weren't planning on having. I remember uh, sitting under a pastor's ministry just after PowerPoint had been invented. This is when pastors really were just beginning to utilize media in their sermons. And uh, we had just spent a fortune on on a projector, a video projector. And now we had PowerPoint with this video projector. And the very first sermon I remember seeing in PowerPoint was based on the movie The Lion King. And the first slide came up giving the title of the movie with a sunrise in the background, except 
I don't think spell check had been in, quite uh, integrated into PowerPoint yet. And not only that, but it wouldn't have caught it anyway. It was just a mix-up of a couple of letters because the slide behind the pastor read in gigantic words the following phrase, the loin king, arise to your potential. And from that point on, it seemed like everything in that sermon just took on a completely different meaning. A matter of fact, I don't ever remember that he turned around to see what it actually said behind him. And in in polite horror, everybody just sat there in church, stifling all of the laughter that came from every word that was said. Anything about standing up, standing firm, standing strong was immediate innuendo. And I remember at one point burying my face in my hands because in my 20s, that was funny. And I got to tell you, in my late 40s, it's still funny. Some of the things we do to communicate the gospel, and sometimes it works, sometimes not so much. Perhaps the greatest example of ministry faux pas in my life was my own father. He could do it in spectacular fashion and recover well and keep the revival going. We were in St. Joe, Missouri one time, and there was a man on the front row that had a toupee. Well, it wasn't a toupee. It was a full wig. Now, my dad didn't need a microphone to preach. When he started to preach, I think the sound guy would turn the microphone all the way down because he just had this voice that would would just blow your hair back. And in this case, my dad could not figure out why this guy in the front row was not paying attention. And dad had this way of engaging with people. He'd come down off the platform and get right in your face right while he was preaching. And in this particular case, he reached up and he put his hand on top of this guy's head and he was just going to kind of tussle his hair around a little bit. And instead, he literally pulled this guy's whole wig right off of his head and stood there for what seemed like an eternity, but really it was only a couple of seconds, and and fumbling around with it in his hands, he put it back down on this guy's head, but somewhat crooked, so it looked just horribly silly, and says to this guy, says, we got to cover that up, because an ostrich might try to sit on it and hatch it out, and I was just undone. I was about probably about 14 years old, and it was one of the greatest moments I had ever had in church in my whole life. Well, the place was just rolling. And you would honestly think that this poor guy would get up and run out of the church or stomp out of there offended saying, I'm never coming back. But you know, a funny thing happened. And this is, this is, I guess, maybe the grace and the anointing that was on my dad's life. The following night at the revival meeting that continued, that man came back without his wig and sat on the front row again. And afterwards testified to my dad that You know, I've been walking in fear my entire life. And last night, something just broke off of me. And you know what? I I feel more confident than I've ever felt before. And it ended up actually being a positive moment for that man. You know, I could go on for hours and probably even days sharing stories with you. And my friends can tell you the stories that I probably can't tell you on this podcast. I've just kind of scratched the surface of 30 years of ministry and things I've seen and things I've heard and things I've been a part of and uh, some of the regrets that I wish I could go back and do over again and do better. 
But somehow, in spite of ourselves, God has a way of moving and working and and doing things that really go beyond any of our own efforts. That's the grace, the reckless grace of God. I told you the story about the time I made it rain in the sanctuary, uh, fake rain. But I haven't told you the story yet about the time that God made it rain for real. And it was a story that really changed our lives. It was a story that kind of led us into an entire encounter with the grace of God uh, on a tangible level that I had personally never experienced before. And it launched us into a journey that continues to this day. I'll share that story with you right after this. A deadly pandemic, raging record-breaking fires and hurricanes, the reality of racism and culture clashes. 2020 was a year that brought people to their knees and even shook the faith of many people. People that I knew, people that you probably know. Are we about to find ourselves in the final battle? I'm sure I'm not the only person who has wondered these things. Restoring Revelation is a 10-part audio series that was recorded during the pandemic of 2020. In times of uncertainty, people want answers, and the book of Revelation absolutely becomes popular again. But Revelation is a book of hope and a book of joy, unveiling the eternal victory of Christ in you, the very hope of glory. This series will enlighten, educate, entertain, and empower you to live and accomplish your assignment on the earth today. Download all 10 hours at BillVanderbush.com. My dad was an amazing uh, minister, an amazing inspiration in my life. And uh, he came to visit our church after we had built a new building. The church had grown considerably and we had bought property out on out on a highway and we had built this building and, and pretty much did most of the construction ourselves. So there was a lot of just personal uh, input and investment into this property. And and we felt really, really good about it. And we had a great church staff and, and everything we did with, was with excellence. And excellence was kind of the word of the day. And uh, at least I felt like we did everything with excellence. We tried our best. And my dad came to visit one time. And he said after a service, when I asked him, how, how did you enjoy it, dad? He said, Bill, it's excellent. You don't even need the Holy Spirit and you could still do church. And, you know, said something in that moment that really only a father could say, because that's the kind of confrontation that you just need to be in relationship with somebody who you know loves you in order to hear with the kind of ears that really can draw you into where you know the Lord is wanting to take you. And and in this moment, I took it for what it was. It was an invitation. There was more. And I knew I knew there was. I knew that God was inviting us to more. This wasn't just about, you know, putting on a production every single week and coming up with a new sermon every single week. And, and, and uh, we were getting people saved and baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. And all of those things were happening. But I, I knew, I just knew that there was something more to this relationship, this intimacy with God, this this father-son paradigm of family building kingdom life uh, where the power and the purity, the presence of God flows through your life in a way that, that transcends just us performing for him. I knew there was more. And so uh, I, I was led to pull some of our leaders and staff together for prayer on a Saturday afternoon. It was on October, I believe, 2004. And in in that October Saturday afternoon, standing in the sanctuary uh, with about nine people in the sanctuary, as I recall, and, and four of them were myself, my wife, and our two kids. 
And we were standing there and I said, uh, Lord, send the rain of your presence. And I felt a drop of water hit my arm. I looked up and over my head was a wet spot on the ceiling. And it was dripping down onto me and the other people that were around there. And the spot was growing. As a matter of fact, everywhere it went, water was falling. And it ended up covering the entire ceiling from the back of the auditorium to the front of the auditorium. It was falling now on the soundboard. It was falling on the instruments on the stage. It was falling on our brand new chairs. And I knew what everything cost in the sanctuary. And I got angry. That was my first response. And I said out loud, this is bad, this is wrong, and this is going to ruin everything. And the the people that were there started looking for plastic and utility closets to cover up the stuff that was valuable so that the water wouldn't ruin it. And our prayer meeting was over. That was it. And I stomped outside because I was going to go to the car. I'd left my phone in the car and I was going to go to the car, get my phone and call the building contractor to come up and look at this building and find out why we had such a horrendous leak that was ruining everything. As I stepped outside, my son, who was 10 years old at the time, he was walking out after me and I was so angry and so agitated that I failed to notice what he noticed. And he looked into the air and noticed that there was not a cloud in the sky And he yelled at me, Dad, look, it's dry outside, but it's raining in the sanctuary. And I stopped and I looked around and he was right. And suddenly it hit me. And as as loud, as deeply, as most profoundly impacting as I've ever felt the Holy Spirit speak to my heart, this is what the Lord said. If I pour out Upon this church, what you've just asked me for, the same response you just had will be the same response these people have. This is bad, and this is wrong, and this is going to ruin everything. Within a matter of a few minutes, somebody came out and said, Bill, you got to come and see this. And I came inside to find the sanctuary completely dry. Not a drop of water was left anywhere it had fallen on the plastic or sound equipment or anything And everywhere where the water had collected in the plastic, it was just dust as if it had never been there at all. The ceiling was dry. The carpet was dry. The chairs were dry. Everything was dry. And I didn't know what to make of it. But I knew that God was inviting us into something more, something beyond my own understanding. I realized in that moment there was something that I had done where God was trying to bring correction to my life. It wasn't the first time that he had brought correction. It certainly wouldn't be the last. His ability to correct us is something that's really necessary. And it's actually a part of the grace of God to actually bring correction into our lives. And, and it's part of, I think, our own lesson in surrender, learning to surrender to his corrective grace that actually empowers us for future ministry, empowers us to continue to, to partner with him. Here's one of the things that God was trying to correct in me. God was actually trying to take us to a place beyond our understanding, because that's actually where peace is. The Bible says, may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, keep and guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And I felt like the place I could stay free from deception, guarding my heart and mind was to lean into my own understanding, to stay 
confined by my own understanding. And I realized God was trying to take me beyond that. In other words, to the place where he would show me things that I didn't have language for. Take me to places where I, I, I couldn't figure out exactly what was going on. It violated my own sense of what he was capable of. What he was trying to do was eliminate the boundaries I had placed upon his ability to move, live, move, and have his being in my life and through my life. And I think that's one of the ways that God grows us is by moving us beyond our own understanding because that is where the peace is. That's where our heart and our mind are guarded the most. That's where we're the most safe and secure is when we move beyond our own understanding. Over the next few weeks, as we unpack the recklessness of the grace of God, uh, I believe I'm going to share some things with you that are going to take you beyond your own understanding. And listen, you may wonder, what's the purpose of even sharing all these goofy stories today? This is more than just for entertainment. I want you to understand that I've done a lot of stupid things in my lifetime. As a matter of fact, the people that know me the best will say, Bill, you didn't even begin to talk about the stupidest things you've ever done. And it's true. And in the middle of it all, to be able to say, you know, that God has continued to extend grace to me hopefully will give you hope that he can continue to extend grace to you because he's actually interested in the process that you and I are in. God is far more interested in having a dynamic relationship of intimacy with you than he is in you having a dynamic ministry, even if that ministry makes him look good. He's not so interested in in you impacting his reputation. He's interested in, in knowing your heart. He's interested in you being vulnerable before him. He's really desiring to draw you and I both into a, a revelation of his grace and goodness that surpasses anything we've ever come to know up until this point. And I believe that's the journey that we're on to discover the extent of the recklessness of the grace of God, that in the middle of all of our stupidity, in the middle of all of our failures, in the middle of all of our messes, he doesn't leave us and he doesn't forsake us and he doesn't give up on us. And aren't you thankful? I know after 30 years of pastoring, I sure am. Hey, thanks for listening today. Hope you enjoyed it. See you next week. Thank you so much for your love and support. You make it possible for Bill and Tracy to keep the message of Jesus Christ going around the world. We're thankful for every open door, not only in the U.S., but in places like Ireland, England, Scotland, France, Germany, and more. We are always encouraged as we find fires of God burning each place we go. We value your prayers more than you can even imagine. If you feel compelled to give, you can find a link at billvanderbush.com. We would love to hear from you. Feel free to write to us at Faith Mountain Ministries, P.O. Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258.